Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Jeff Schmidt, a physical therapist, and I serve on the DD6 podcast team. I'm so excited to be joined by Dr. Mark Maniago, the winner of the DD6 Platform Award at CSM in San Diego earlier this year. The title of this presentation was Feasibility of Low Load Resistance Training with Blood Flow Restriction for People with Severe Multiple Sclerosis. Dr. Maniago is an assistant professor for the physical therapy program at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus, as well as a research health science specialist at the Rocky Mountain VA Medical Center. Thank you very much for joining us today, Mark. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm at the uh, University of Colorado uh, Physical Therapy Program, which is on the Institute's Medical Campus in Aurora, Colorado, and that's on the same campus as our uh, Rocky Mountain Regional uh, VA Medical Center, where, where, like you mentioned, I have uh, more recently joined and, and also doing uh, research in people with MS there as well. And so, um, yeah, primarily now I, I mostly uh, conduct research and the majority of it um, is in people with MS. Okay, great. And the topic of your, your platform is looking at blood flow restriction in this population. And the use of blood flow restriction has certainly increased um, in people with sports and orthopedic backgrounds. And it's nice for it to be seen as a tool in people with neurologic conditions. So before we dive into your platform, uh, would you mind telling the listeners a little bit about what blood flow restriction is? Yeah, you know, blood flow restriction uh, is a way to introduce hypoxia into uh, the muscles. So you you um, essentially wear a, a cuff around um, one of your limbs that you're hoping to exercise, uh, usually kind of at the most proximal portion of that limb. And then um, at least with the system that we use, it's connected to a machine that can, you know, determine the amount of occlusion that's needed and um, and then provide that occlusion uh, to the limb. And the goal of BFR or blood flow restriction is to uh, reduce arterial blood flow and then uh, ideally uh, block uh, venous blood return. And, you know, I'm definitely not a physiologist, but the, you know, the gist of it is, is that um, it'll kickstart that muscle into anaerobic metabolism. So it essentially introduces metabolic stress. And so that um, you can train at lower intensities and lower loads, but get benefits that you might get with higher intensities without using BFR. So. No, that's, that's great. And because we're working at these lower loads, you know, we may have to do increased repetitions, right? So can you talk a little bit about what the standard dosage is when you're when you're at those lower loads that you uh, utilize? Yeah, so we, we tend to like, like you mentioned, th- this intervention has been studied a lot in well, even just healthy subjects or musculoskeletal populations, older adults to a certain extent. And so we tend to follow the dosing guidelines that have come out of that literature. When, when we look at resistance training, that, that's the most commonly kind of studied, I guess, exercise modality with BFR. 
And so, yeah, it tends to be a high, high repetition, low intensity. So intensities are like 20 to 30% of one rep max and uh, repetitions. Uh, we, we do up to 75. So we do four sets that that's 30, 15, 15, 15, um, with, with rests in between. And importantly, uh, the the cuff stays inflated so the muscle stays under hypoxia during the rest periods between the sets okay if if someone's unable to tolerate that cuff being inflated the whole time because um i've i've personally tried bfr i've suffered an achilles rupture in the past so i've used it for strengthening my calves and you know it's not always the most comfortable the first time you use it so would you ever consider maybe deflating it in between the sets for, for patient comfort? I think you, you absolutely would, you know, or could consider that, you know, we, we talk about the work that we've done in MS and, and again, we've, we've mostly focused on kind of more advanced MS. We have not run into that problem. So you're right though. You either hear anecdotally, and, and I think there's a bit of support for this in the literature that not, Everyone tolerates it super well. I've obviously done it uh, quite a bit as well, and I, I would agree it's it's not comfortable. But in the feasibility project that you were referring to in, in the beginning of the podcast, um, that's one of the things we were looking at is how well people tolerated it. And uh, and there's been some other literature that has looked at uh, just simply the tolerance of BFR, like low load training with BFR compared to high load training in people with MS and this this group tends to to tolerate it really well. Okay, great. Yeah, that's awesome. For for the listeners, would you mind uh, just talking about the cuff itself? Are we using a blood pressure cuff? Are we using a special cuff? What units? Uh, what unit are you using typically with your patients and participants? The unit that we are using um, is the Delphi unit. They have their own kind of custom designed uh, cuff, and they actually come with a range of cuffs um, to accommodate different, you know, limb sizes or upper extremity versus lower extremity. Um, And it's quite a bit more robust than a blood pressure cuff, uh, although it functions, I guess, you know, in a similar way mechanically, you know, it it fills up with air. uh, And then and then the machine is such that it can calibrate to exactly the the kind of pressure that you want to um, have. And then as the patient moves, like as they're moving through their exercise and the muscles obviously contracting, expanding, et cetera, um, the cuff will be continuously adjusting pressure to try to stay at that optimal pressure. So that's one thing we really uh, like about that system is it gives you the personalized pressure and then it also can like adjust through, you know, through the movements. But I will say I haven't, tried a lot of other units um and i do want to put a disclaimer in there that that delphi as a company has uh generously supported uh, our research as well so just to you know put that out there sure okay great thank you and so going into discussion about your feasibility study can you tell us a little bit about what prompted you to investigate this? Um, what made you look into blood flow restriction for individuals with severe disability and with multiple sclerosis? Yeah, it really starts because, um, you know, I've, I've always been in, involved with MS rehabilitation uh, before I, I 
did primarily research. I worked as a clinician for a long time in our uh, MS center here locally, the Rocky Mountain MS center. And, and so I've always just really been passionate about MS rehab specifically. And, and when you're familiar with the literature, you, you realize, and it's been the case for a long time, that there's really limited availability of uh, studies that look at interventions in people with severe disease. And so there certainly are really interesting papers, and but there's just not a lot. And as I, I had some, some colleagues that were starting to use BFR uh, from a research perspective, and as I just started to learn a little bit more about that, um, you know, just kind of just kind of clicked, like kind of made sense. Like this, this is something that lets people, you know, work at a lower intensity, but potentially get the same benefits as they would at a higher intensity. And certainly people with MS who have more severe disability, not always, but you could see how their symptoms or their advanced weakness or, uh, you know, whatever it is, fatigue would make them less likely to tolerate like a conventional kind of high load resistance training program. So this device, I felt like it had a lot of potential. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Uh, as a therapist that treats a lot of patients with MS, I I feel like that level of fatigue and fatigability can definitely play a role with these patients meeting those recommended dosages. A lot of the research shows 60 to 80% of somebody's one repetition maximum, eight to 15 repetitions, right? But if we have patients that suffer from severe fatigue that are unable to achieve those loads, then you're right. It sounds like such a great idea. Right. And then the other, you know, the other big thing is people, you know, and, and in this trial, we enroll people who are really weak. And so a lot of times, you know, they're so weak that they're kind of barely, you know, maybe moving against gravity in a muscle group. And then you're, you're even on the lowest weight of some resistance training machine, they can't even, you know, move that weight. And so then how are you ever going to train uh, with that? Um, and so the, you know, the BFR, what it allows you to do with someone like that is then, you know, go to different types of resistance training equipment, uh, which is what we use, um, like a portable resistance trainer and, and just use lower loads and, and, and like more accessible equipment, I guess. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your feasibility study? Yeah, sure. So we um, were, were primarily interested, as the title suggests, in looking at feasibility. So any kind of, you know, strength and mobility improvements were definitely secondary outcomes. And our study wasn't, um, you know, powered to, to to necessarily detect those, although um, we did find some interesting results there. And so we uh, defined feasibility as just, you know, feasibility of enrollment, feasibility of retaining the participants once they were in. So that kind of ties into that idea of tolerance that you mentioned earlier and adherence uh, to the intervention. And then uh, we tracked like vital signs and then we, you know, tracked uh, any kind of events or, or side effects that might be happening dur uh, during or after or in between sessions. Then uh, we also, uh, we're interested in their satisfaction. So we measured satisfaction just on a Likert scale, but then we also did interviews. So like a semi-structured interview 
Um, and we're in the process actually of, of analyzing uh, those results uh, separately. Um, so, so that's how we define feasibility. And um, we thought it was really important with an intervention like this to you know not necessarily jump right into like trying to look at efficacy or you know trying to have a control group and just get everyone everyone got the intervention um and just see how people did with it essentially um so that that's kind of the, the design of the study and then we did eight weeks of treatment twice a week in person um and we enrolled people with EDSS uh, six to seven. So people who were walking at least with a cane um, for 100 meters. Uh, and then uh, seven is essentially, you know, using a wheelchair, but able to kind of get around yourself for the most part. And our goal was to enroll 20 people uh, in that study. Uh, and then we assessed Muscle strength, we use handheld dynamometry for that. And we looked at mobility. We looked at sit to stand, the Berg Mountain scale, time 25 foot walks so with gate speed. Um, we did a variety of, of patient reported outcomes. And then we also looked at physical activity. So we essentially looked at daily step count before and after. I don't think I mentioned what muscles we targeted. So we were targeting. Um, uh, knee, kind of knee and hip extension. It was a leg press. We targeted uh, a calf press. And then we also did uh, targeted hip abduction. So, um, and we did that on both limbs, um, each exercise, uh, both with BFR. Oh, oh, the other thing that we didn't talk about was we did not enroll 20 people. So um, uh, enrolling for clinical trials is always like, that's always the the hardest part, I guess. Um, and we were doing a lot of this kind of at the, well, it was supposed to start right kind of in the peak kind of quarantine COVID times, uh, got delayed. And then it just was, it was just really tough to recruit people and get them to, to come in, uh, particularly people with more advanced disability. So uh, we ended up with 15 uh, that we baseline and one one dropped out before he started intervention. So we, we didn't really consider him in some of these outcomes. So we had 14 uh, data points. We had um, a pretty good distribution. We had five people with EDSS 6, four with 6.5 and five with seven. So that was nice that we had that distribution. Um, we didn't see any differences in how people adhered or, or stayed in the intervention based on you know their disability step. So, you know, people that were more disabled didn't uh, uh, drop out more or, you know, didn't do less or tolerate less or anything like that. Okay, great. And so what did you find regarding retention, adherence, patient satisfaction? Yeah, those all that you mentioned did really well. So we had um, over 90% retention adher and, and adherence. Um, we had, uh, you know, 100% satisfaction on our simple scale. Uh, and then we had really, I guess, compelling comments from people uh, regarding just kind of how they experienced intervention and how it kind of made them feel beyond, you know, beyond just like, oh, I, I felt a little stronger or something um, like, um, like empowering, because this is a population where 
a lot of times they feel a bit neglected by uh, I think uh, the system for lack of a better word you know they they're put on these kind of uh, quote unquote like maintenance programs or you know they're they're they don't feel like they get really aggressive therapy um that's trying to actually make improvements at least that's what you know we heard from some people um so so that was actually a, a really cool uh, kind of you know incidental finding that we we had people report yeah, I think that's that's awesome. And a lot of those patients with those higher disabilities probably used to therapy for compensation, right? And so you're targeting recovery. You're trying to improve their strength, which is awesome. And I'm sure that when they were finished with your study and your protocol, they were probably asking, okay, what's next? How can I do more? I want to keep going, right? Yeah, it's almost like you work with uh, people like, you know, that have MS. Yeah, they were exactly, they were, not all, but a lot of them were like, okay, Eight weeks is up now. Now what? Where do I? Where can I do this? And and how can I continue uh, this? So, um, yeah, that that was sometimes difficult because, you know, one you you know you you know that lots of things can potentially work, right? So it doesn't it doesn't have to be BFR necessarily. Um, and two, there there just weren't a lot of clinics, at least that we were aware of. You know that that we work closely with that like had the BFR unit, but also were really kind of focused on neuro rehab, right? So that those two things haven't intersected quite as much as, you know, as maybe you will here in the near future, I think. But um, do you think that there's a possibility for this to be something that these patients can take with them at home and use blood flow restriction in their own home? Yeah, we've talked about that. Um, colleagues of mine, at CU, um, uh, Mike Body, he he just completed a project where they sent these units, these same units, home with people after uh, a, a knee replacement. And um, again, looking, I think primarily at feasibility. And for the most part, it seems like I don't I don't know that they published that yet, but that people were able to kind of use it. Right? It's it's relatively simple to use. But uh, at the time, I at, at this time, I don't think that at least Delphi sells direct to, um, you know, the patient or the consumer. Right. But but I could, you know, see that like as far as new technologies go, like when you think about, I don't know, things like FES devices and other things that go direct to, to patients that I think it compares right in terms of cost. So. Sure. And I think as blood flow restriction becomes more popular, uh, I think there may be other units in the future that are maybe more accessible as long as they say, do what they say that they're going to do, right? Yeah. That's, that's, that's the goal, right? So our patients can have something like this that they truly enjoy exercising with at home. Yeah, there's a really good point. And that, that came up, that, that's come up in other just sort of kind of side conversations I've had with people you know, as we've been presenting the work or just, you know, other clinicians is like, yeah, that's great. You know, twice a week in the clinic for eight weeks or 10 weeks or 12 weeks even, but then what, right. Then what do we do? Because, mm -hmm. Yeah. It, right now it isn't available at home. Um, and, uh, and, and not necessarily something you're just going to like, you know, you don't just find it at the 24 hour fitness or whatever. Um, right. So, yeah, I think that's an interesting question. So, you know, that, uh, you know, like maybe you're right as the 
technology becomes more popular and, and maybe cheaper um, and and it's you know safe, then people are able to do it at home. Um, or it becomes a bridge like, you know, you you empower someone to, you know, feel like they can make progress and, and strengthen themselves and, you know, then get them doing some other program that they can do independently. Um, we certainly had, I certainly had those types of conversations when we were wrapping up, you know, with certain individuals in this study. Oh, great. So you mentioned a little bit about adherence uh, and satisfaction of your participants. Can you tell us a little bit about those functional uh, outcomes and strength changes? We made improvements in all the strength outcomes. We quantified this with effect sizes. Just, it's a good way to sort of, you know, we didn't really want to talk about statistically significant or not improvements with 14 people. So we quantified these with effect sizes and we had mostly moderate, but some large effect sizes for like pre-post muscle strength changes. And then the the main mobility outcome that we were interested in was a 30 second sit to stand test. So we allowed people to use their arms or not, but that we just kept that consistent and we had actually a really nice effect on that, uh, a large effect size. And people went, um, well, people improved uh, two repetitions. So, uh, and then the Berg balance score, uh, people went from an average score of a 35 to 40. So improved around five points on the Berg. So pretty, you know, overall, right, 34, five points is for the sample is a pretty, pretty impaired sample um and and that was also uh, a large effect size that's really interesting because you're doing all of these exercises while your patients are sitting down right and so for you to have an improvement by more than four points on a berg which is mostly looking at your standing balance i think is really showing the power of of what this can do yeah, I know it is interesting and it it, it is like uh I've also had like kind of conversations about that with lots of people of I mean we are doing a leg press which is very similar to a sit stand right in the same muscle groups and and similar motion uh, but it's definitely not like you know test practice right I think what it comes down to is well a couple things I mean we know in MS like when you just when you strengthen you can you tend to be able to improve some aspects of mobility, right? It might not be like the best way to improve all mobility, but it definitely can make an improvement. But I think when you get into this level of uh, impairment and and specifically when you're this weak, like when you can make, um, I mean, we were making, you know, in some people 20, 30% improvements in their strength, then that goes a long way, right? Like that, that, that weakness was probably contributing a lot to the fact that you couldn't stand for a minute. Right. Um, and now you're, uh, you're quite a bit stronger relative to your baseline. And so it gives you just that, that pure capacity to, to be able to do that. Sure. And what are your thoughts on confidence in these patients with these higher disability levels? If they're not used to, standing on their own without upper extremity support and now all of a sudden they've gone through eight weeks of strength training and they're getting stronger 
Uh, do you think that maybe their confidence improving and just their ability to support themselves and move around? I that's one thing I really wish we had done was was um like a self-efficacy type of outcome. That that theme has definitely come out that that some people at least um you know were reporting qualitatively that they felt more confident, right? Like didn't no no one went from walking in with a walker to you know running out the door without anything but um but people definitely did feel more more confident there was one person in particular who was in a power scooter um when she would come she was in a manual wheelchair at home but when she would come to the clinic she'd be in a power scooter and what she was able to do from this and we don't measure this but this is what she reported is she was now able to get up from the floor and into her scooter and so because of that um and she was a bit of a daredevil, uh, you know, personality wise, she would feel more confident going out because if her scooter tipped and she fell over, right, then she could get back in, right? I know this is not what all PTs want to hear, uh, but it's the reality, right? And and so, uh, you know, for better, or for worse, she felt much more com- comfortable participating more uh, and didn't have any falls while she was yeah. that. So, so that's a good part. <laughs> That's, that's awesome. It's, it's awesome to hear those kinds of stories um, because that's what's meaningful to our patients, right? Their ability to go out into the community, whether or not they've improved two repetitions on a 30 second chair stand, does that improve their ability to go out into the community? Maybe, um, but your patient that is now able to get up off the floor uh, onto her scooter is going to really allow her to just go out there. And I think something else um, is fatigue levels as well. And I noticed in your results that there was a large effect size on the modified fatigue impact scale. Um, So if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that, I think that's super important. If we can make a difference in our patients' fatigue levels, that's going to really improve their ability to just get out and do things. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the effect size for this was, it was kind of bordering on large, but moderate. Um, So they improved about nine points on the modified fatigue impact scale. I think it's pretty consistent with effects we see from other maybe exercise intervention studies. Like there's, you know, there's a there's a moderate effect on on self-reported fatigue that tends to happen with lots of different types of exercise. So I, I don't know that it's specific to the BFR, but again, it comes back to the fact of maybe some of these patients or participants wouldn't have been able to exercise to this intensity, which improves their capacity, which then might lead to this improvement in fatigue. So again, like this BFR being a tool to help these people, you know, improve their capacity and their function and and then, you know, maybe their fatigue as well. But yeah, that was actually a bit of a uh, I guess side benefit of the of the intervention for a lot of people, and that came up a lot in the in the interviews as well. That people felt like they had more energy uh, throughout the day. Okay, great. And did you notice a difference in hip abduction versus some of those other muscle groups? Um, and whether you saw the same changes at, at a muscle that's more proximal than the cuff versus distal? Yeah, yeah, it's a great point. So as you're kind of getting at. Most of the benefits that we would expect from BFR would be distal to the cuff because those are the muscles that are being 
primarily occluded, right? Directly or directly occluded. Um, and much less is known, generally speaking. So even in the in MSK literature about improving muscles proximal to the cuff. I don't know that literature really well. Uh, I do know there's been some studies that have like looked at rotator cuff strength changes with the cuff placed obviously below the shoulder, like over the arm. And like that was purposeful on our design to like, let's, let's target a muscle that's proximal to the cuff. A, a lot of my other research uh, is very interested in looking at the role of proximal muscles in, in MS. So like, the, the importance of trunk and, and proximal muscles for uh, walking mobility, um, and I hadn't I hadn't really explored that in people with more advanced disability. That's always been in people with less severe disability, um, and so we wanted to try to get at something. And then hip abduction kind of made the most sense. Um, we've also found it to be a really important predictor of of walking for people with MS. Um, so yeah, and and it it improved. In fact, our largest single effect size for strength happened in the less involved hip abductors. Um, so that was actually really, really wow. interesting. Yeah. That's awesome. So we can apply blood flow restriction and still have benefits at muscles that are proximal. Well, yeah, I don't know if we can go that far with this because, again, 14 people, you know, pre-post design, no, no comparison. I it, it could be, right? Like it definitely could be at that I mean, and the hip abductors, they're pretty close, right? It's not they're like to to where the occlusion is happening, even though they are proximal. Um, so so it could be um, an effect of the BFR. I think an alternate explanation could could also be from having studied hip abductor strength in people with MS a lot. People are really tend to be really weak in their hip abductors. And so part of my thinking is like maybe even doing 75 reps of low intensity hip abduction work, like could maybe make you stronger, right? If you're, especially right. if you're really weak. So maybe, maybe more than what they're used to doing anyways. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and that, that's a muscle I think that gets weaker and more uh, like secondary weakness because of disuse, right? Especially people with, higher disability like they're not doing a ton of lateral movements or um you know they're doing a lot of sit to stand maybe and so they're you know their their quads and their calves are working but um so yeah that that's that's something we're i guess gonna try to not necessarily at the hip abductors but we're gonna try to evaluate that in the in the next phase of study um a little more sure Tell us a little bit of, about that. What are the next phases of the study? So we're very excited. We actually just enrolled uh, earlier this month our first participant in our next phase. So we are doing a randomized trial at uh, the VA here in Denver, looking at vets with MS who have also more advanced disability. We've expanded the eligibility criteria a little bit. So we're using the PDDS this time uh, for at least for screening. And we're going to a four, which is 
I need a cane to walk at least some of the time, essentially. So it, it gets a, a few more people, um, but but still pretty disabled um, all the way through wheelchair users. And we are we're randomizing to get low load resistance training with BFR. Similar protocol. We're not going to do the hip abductors. Uh, we're going to do um, knee flexors as well. So knee flexors, leg press and calf press bilaterally. Um, with BFR, and then the um, other group is going to get low load intensity resistance training only, and so that's kind of what I was meaning. Like, you know, you get a you get people that are pretty deconditioned, long, you know, decades sometimes of weakness and, and disuse. So, I think it would be really interesting to know for you know, kind of the neuro rehab world, like, does even little bits of exercise help right i mean it's it's a lot of repetitions but it's not it's, it's same intensity 20 to 30 percent of one rep max um and so we're going to compare those two groups and then and then scientifically it's a very clean comparison of the bfr right so we'll we'll really we'll really know like what the bfr does or what the bfr adds to that program um and we hope to enroll 58 people i'm almost nervous to say it because uh it's never easy but yeah so so we're excited very nice so you'll have to uh you'll have to come back on and talk to us about those results when you have yeah, them. In, in six <laughs> years or whatever yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> so we we've talked a lot about exercising at the lower loads a lot of the research shows and says that you know we may want to work at those higher loads so what are your thoughts on using the blood flow restriction at the lower loads if you have a patient that can tolerate those higher loads, do you think that it's that it's better, uh, the same? I don't know that. I mean, just just thinking about the musculoskeletal literature, uh, I don't think it's necessarily better, right? So I'm not a you know musculoskeletal clinician, orthopedic clinician, but I've interacted with a lot of them. Just you know, now kind of being a little bit in the BFR world. And from what I gather, like, you know, clinically, a lot of people use BFR musculoskeletal rehab when people also don't tolerate high load training, right? Usually it's an injury or a recovery from a surgery or something. Um, and, you know, once people can then get back to high load training, you you, you drop the BFR, right? And, and go back to high load training. So, uh, you know, there's all, there's, I guess there's other potential physiological benefits that you you might may get from you know bfr that you might not get from uh you know just conventional training but but none of those to me um seem to have a ton of evidence to support them um so i don't, I don't know if, if you'd get a you know an additional benefit and so therefore i i think i would probably you know people can tolerate high intensity work i would just without you know the bfr then i would just probably stick with that okay do you do you have some sort of a decision making algorithm or tree in your head regarding these people that come in because you know we can assume that they can't tolerate it um, and just throw them on the blood flow restriction or maybe we throw the higher loads at them but risk having them fail and be discouraged what are your thoughts regarding your perfect patient that talks to you during your evaluation, mm -hmm. whether they'd be a candidate for this? 
Yeah, that's such a good question. And you're in your I feel like you're getting in my head too, because I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think one one point you bring up is is, you know, we we you know, you you make generalizations in in research a lot, or in, in the sense that you, you know, you have a protocol often and you apply it to everyone regardless of how they present, right? And so clinically. I think some of these people that we enrolled in this trial probably could have tolerated like high load training. And so um I think you know on 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 the on one end people that are really weak, right? Like, you know, very limited active movement or um you know, very limited ability to stand or things like that. Those people just, you know, like we talked about earlier, sometimes they just can't even physically access the machine that you want them to get to safely, right? Um, And so those people, I think it's very, uh, or it's an easier kind of algorithm, right, to get them into like a BFR type of intervention. Um, And then on the other end, like we just talked about, someone who's like maybe low disability, tolerate everything, that's very clear to me, like probably don't need to do bfr but yeah there's there's all kinds of people in the middle there that that yeah i've been trying to think about how do you like like certainly we're lacking a lot of evidence but even just like clinical reasoning uh from a clinical reasoning perspective like how how do you approach that um and and decide whether you're going to do it or not i think it's always okay to try something but just being okay with pivoting if you think that that's not at the right decision. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's really, that's, that's makes a lot of sense. And that, I mean, that's what we do with all the rest of our plan of care. Right. Um, sure. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, and I guess that's one thing, you know, the, this was a very like limited study in many senses, but um, it did show us kind of what you're speaking to that it was doable uh, and, and tolerable to all these people and so like you said i mean yeah you know why not give it a try if you feel like your patient isn't tolerating uh you know the conventional rehab that you're throwing at them okay well thank you very much for being here and joining us tonight it's been really enlightening to talk about different things that we can do for our patients with those higher disability levels. So before we let you go, we'd love to know what are some things that you enjoy doing outside of your work as a professor and a researcher? Last time we had a long discussion. I don't think it all made it onto the the cut, but about, about building Lego, but that's now faded because my kids are two or three years older from when I was last on. So, um, so I'll, I'll give the conventional, Colorado answer and that I love spending time in the outdoors and I do. Um, so we do a lot of hiking and backpacking and, and fishing uh, in my family. So. Okay. Well, you can combine them, bring the Legos out to your hike. That's right. You know, we, we, we have done that in the past. So there you go. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. Uh, well, thank you again for for being here tonight. We look forward to seeing you and having you on the podcast in the near future. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun talking shop, and uh, I always enjoy coming on this podcast. This podcast is produced and edited by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group podcast team. Our team includes Carm Paget, Sarah Zoller, 
Katie McGraw, Christina Burke, Ken Vanacco, Carly Havard, I'm Jeff Schmidt. Subscribe to our newsletter on the NPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. And please share this episode with a colleague today. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. I don't, I don't want to, you can always edit this out, expose the, you know, all the, all the voices on the call. But... Thanks for bearing with me on, on my first uh, interview. Oh, was that podcast. your first? You couldn't tell from the, the sweat? No. It's not. Certainly not cheap, but uh, it's not like buying a robot or something. I really do think, Mark, you're probably the person <laughs> who's been on our podcast the most. Am I right, Sarah? Is this like three or four? What do they call it on Strava? Like no. the local legend. You're the local no legend. <laughs> oh, man. This like all my like nerd comes out on this podcast. You know, you're in the car and you're just playing your podcast and like the next one queued up, starts playing and you're and was driving and, you know, comes on and it was the one with us and my kids are in the back and they're like, oh, you sound really, you know, and they're just like critique, critique. I'm like, oh, God, this is awful. <laughs> <laughs>